This is episode one of the podcast series, The Man Who Wasn't There. And this episode is an explanation to you as to what's coming in each of the following short episodes. To start with, are you, like me, attracted to stories that have an uplifting ending? Stories, for example, where the lovers, despite obstacles, come together happily at last. Or stories where some of the characters, whatever their faults, come to a better place as the credits roll. Or stories where the evil ones get their just desserts. If you are like me, then that's a good reason to listen to the following short episodes. It's a good reason to listen because if you like the right outcome, the just outcome, the memorable outcome, then when you finish listening to these episodes, you will want to contact the Chief Justice of the Australian State of Tasmania and ask him to persuade the state government to set up an independent inquiry, one that is chaired by a senior, recently retired judge from another Australian state as the commissioner of that inquiry, and she or he to be assisted by a highly respected senior prosecutor, also from another state with lots of experience with murder and manslaughter cases. And this commissioner and the prosecutor need the help of some top-rate police investigators, current or retired, from other Australian states such as Victoria, New South Wales or Queensland. The Chief Justice that I'm asking you to send a note to was the trial judge at the 2010 jury trial of Sunil Fraser. She was on trial for the Australia Day 2009 murder of her partner, Bob Chappell, on board their ocean-going yacht called the Four Winds that was moored that day on the Derwent River in Hobart, the capital city of Tasmania. Now, that was a trial which went horribly wrong, but that wasn't the fault of the trial judge. It was the fault of others to whom we now turn. So it was the fault of Tasmanian police who became fixated on the wrong hypothesis and blind to the consequences of their basic errors. It was the fault, too, of Tasmanian police forensic staff who forgot their obligations under the Expert Witness Code of Conduct. One of them even forgot the science when giving her evidence. But the fault extends, too, to those staff in the prosecution office who failed to pass on to the trial prosecutor and the defence team some vital information about evidence that was to be given at the trial. That failure led the defence to accept as true some evidence which contradicted that given to them by their own client. In other words, they preferred the false evidence to that of their client. That is explicable. However, there are other failures in the defence work at that trial 
for which they and they are alone are at fault. All of the errors by all of those parties might have been corrected and the wrongfully convicted now prisoner released from jail if there had been a willingness by those entrusted and well paid to manage the justice system to acknowledge and deal with those problems of a misinvestigation, the failures to follow police and prosecution disclosure obligations, the gross errors in the forensic evidence put before the jury, and, more recently, the shortcomings in the prisoner's ill-fated second appeal attempt in 2021. That that 2021 appeal would fail was obvious when it began, if for no other reason than that significant and compelling issues were abandoned without explanation by her lawyers at the start of that appeal. The appeal bench was then presented with not much of what could have been and should have been a great deal of compelling information and argument. Let's move to three telling examples of those shortcomings. First, that a leading forensic scientist who had been retained for the appeal was advised that he would not be called by the prisoner's lawyers just a couple of days before the appeal began. For months before that, he had been trying without success to set up times to brief them on the straightforward science that would have led, at least, to a retrial. A second example is that of a young woman. She'd been a teenager in January 2009, who has repeatedly in subsequent years admitted to being present at the crime scene. She had denied that at the trial. She's made stacked declarations to her being on the yacht at the time of the crime, also stating that Sue Neil Fraser, now the prisoner, was not there. The young woman's personal circumstances are difficult, so difficult that they called for careful preparation for her evidence at the appeal. Such preparation did not occur. The result was that she was turned publicly into an object of ridicule. Note, I use the word object, not person, to emphasise how poorly she was treated. The prisoner's lawyers abandoned her and her evidence. Prior to that appeal hearing, she, along with a trusted companion, met with a lawyer whose job it was to protect her. He failed to do so. A complaint about his conduct was made. It was dismissed. That might surprise some listeners. It is not surprising to those with knowledge of Tasmania's legal system. There is no mention in the reasons for the dismissal of the complaint as to that lawyer making any notes of his interview with the young woman. As such note-taking is a fundamental of criminal practice, we must assume one or more of the following. Option one, that no notes were taken. Option two, that the investigator didn't ask about any notes. And option three, that there were notes and they backed up the complaint. 
The third factor is the information that you will hear in these short podcast episodes from the man who the police say wasn't there. You'll make up your own mind as to whether he was there or not. You'll also wonder why the appeal judges heard none of it. And you'll wonder too why, as indeed he was there, an innocent woman is still in jail. Part of the answer to your wonderment and bemusement is is that at every level of our court system, the judges can do no more than deal with the evidence actually before them. If they're shortchanged, they cannot fill in the gaps. On the evidence at the trial in 2010, the jury were entitled to convict. Each and every subsequent appellate court has reached the right decision on the basis of the evidence actually put before them. Judges are not gifted with being able to discern omissions and mischaracterizations when no one sitting as a lawyer at the bar table draws it to their attention. But that lack of information cannot be allowed as the excuse for those lawyers, police and politicians in Tasmania who have been provided, in fact, with all the necessary information, along with supporting evidence, but who have chosen, despite that evidence, not only to ignore it, but to attack the messengers, misusing their positions of influence so as to mislead the public as to the true state of the affairs. And what is that true state of affairs? Answer, there never was, and is not now, reliable evidence sufficient to sustain the conviction of Sue Neill Fraser. There has been a deliberate and sustained refusal to engage with the readily available evidence, and that evidence has not been put before judges. Evidence that compels the conclusion that there has been a wrongful conviction. But more than that, there is ample evidence as to who was present at the crime scene and that the accused was not one of them. Evidence also as to why they were there and what they did when they were there. You will hear about that evidence in this podcast. Once you've listened to the facts kept both from the jurors and the appeal judges, you might ask yourself why so much effort has been put into doing nothing for so long when with much less effort the truth could have come out. There are police and present or past forensic officers who have the knowledge to expose and confirm the deficiencies in the police investigation. But they would be foolish to do anything or even say anything until they have the protection of a formal inquiry. Likewise, there are likely present or former staff in the State Prosecutor's Office with knowledge of how the wrongs were done and even why. But they too need the protection of a formal inquiry. Last year, 2021, the State Attorney-General was given written reasons which would have justified her approaching the 2021 Appeal Court, seeking the leave of that court to reopen the appeal and put on fresh, fresh reasons and evidence. There was an opportunity to do that because the Appeal Court reserved its decision for many months following the few hearing days. 
However, the attorney chose instead to publicly claim that she could not apply to the court to reopen the appeal. That claim was legal nonsense. The legal position is that her common law powers to take over a criminal matter were not taken away under the prosecution statute in Tasmania. If ever there was a time to use her common law powers, as they have been used elsewhere in Australia, 2021, and this particular case, was the right opportunity to do so. Sadly, the breadth and depth of the commitment among the Tasmanian political, legal and police elite to keep the lid on the travesty, that is the Sue Neil Fraser conviction, is so embedded that only a wide-ranging commission of inquiry conducted by outsiders with no connection to that elite can deliver a credible outcome to the Tasmanian community. The episodes in this podcast will open your eyes to what really happened on the afternoon of Australia Day in January 2009 on the Four Winds Yacht. It will open your eyes too to how quickly the police investigation decided, despite the contrary evidence, that Sue Neil Fraser had murdered her partner. It will show you how an, un- an honest witness became an unwitting tool for false evidence as a result of a poor investigative methodology. It will show how some important evidence was ignored and how other evidence was damaged by being lost in a police car park for some days, with that loss being covered up and not told to the jury. And lastly, you will hear of a forensic science debacle that rivals the Azaria Chamberlain forensic disaster of the early 1980s. The final episode pulls all of the information together and hopefully that summary will confirm conclusions that you will have already reached for yourself. And if you have reached those conclusions, please bring your concerns to the eyes and mind of the Chief Justice, who is so committed to serve Tasmania that he persuaded the government to change the law so that his retirement at age 72 was stretched out to his 75th birthday. The message that you might choose to send the Chief Justice will be found in the written summary to the final episode. And I hope that you feel obliged, or at least pressed, to do something about it. Because enough of such messages from interested people might bring him and those he trusts not only to listen to this podcast series but to be comfortably persuaded that he and the jury in 2010 were misled. If that happens then the blindfold that has kept out the light for 13 years from the eyes of influential politicians, police and lawyers in the state of Tasmania will have been removed and the scales of justice will tilt 
at last in the right direction. <laughs>